Hey, Outpost Theology listeners, this is your host, Josh McNall, for another episode at the frontier of theology, culture, and the church. My guest today is Jamar Tisby. He is an author. He's written for the New York Times, for The Atlantic, for CNN, and he has a new book out from Zondervan called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. And because this is such an important topic right now, the issue of racial justice with the recent uh, deaths in the news of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. We wanted to get this episode out as quickly as we could to you because it's just such an important issue. As always, if you would leave us a review at Outpost Theology, wherever you listen to the podcast, a nice, honest, positive review, that really helps us to get the episode out there. And as always, we are sponsored by my favorite university, Oklahoma Wesleyan University, a private Christ-centered Christian liberal arts university in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, with classes both on ground and online. And if you go to www.okwu.edu, you can learn more about Oklahoma Wesleyan, including our plans to reopen this fall safely. www.okwu.edu. What would it look like for the church to be courageous rather than complicit on the issue of racism and racial prejudice? My guest today is Jamar Tisby. He's a historian, a writer, a speaker. He's also a Christian, and his first book is titled The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. Jamar, welcome to Outpost Theology. I am honored to be on here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, our, our kind of catchphrase is that we want to try to situate ourselves uh, for the podcast at the frontier of theology, culture, and the church. And right now, we're recording this at the end of May, and especially in the last few weeks, I don't think there is a single issue um, in the country or maybe on the planet that is more uh, situated at the nexus of those issues mm. than racism. Uh, racial prejudice and complicity with it. So uh, thanks so much for coming on and, and talking with me today. Yeah, it takes a, a certain amount of wherewithal and even courage sometimes to approach these issues. So I'm, I'm glad that it's being done from the academy and from a Christian perspective. Yeah. Well, you are the president of The Witness, uh, a black Christian collective, and you also co-host, I want to give a shout out to your podcast because I've been listening to it lately, Pass right. the Mic. Uh, you got a BA from Notre, Notre Dame. I almost said Notre Dame. That's like a, a cathedral or something. You know, I, I heard uh, <laughs> one of the former presidents of Notre Dame say the first part is the French pronunciation. The second part is anglicized. So he said Notre Dame. <laughs> so uh, okay. Well, I learned that. There we go. I've already learned something today. <laughs> and you're a PhD student at the University of Mississippi. So uh, that's, uh, that's fantastic. I before we get into your book, I want to talk about The Color of Compromise, and I also want to talk about just kind of some current events. But before we do that, would you mind giving us maybe just a brief sketch of kind of where you grew up and how you ended up doing what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in the Midwest in the Chicago area. So uh, a couple of months ago, we were watching The Last Dance uh, biography about the 97-98 Chicago Bulls, and that brought up some great memories and there's no argument about the goat in my mind and i'm totally biased and i'm fine saying that yeah. <laughs> so uh i grew up in the chicago no, I, think, I think you're right 
<laughs> that, that that's going to be the only thing people remember about this podcast is <laughs> bringing, up, bringing up this debate at the top of it. Um, but yeah, I, I I grew up in sort of uh, it was a non-Christian household, but it was not hostile to Christianity. Um, but I came mm-hmm. to faith personally in high school through the ministry of a white evangelical youth group. And even though I didn't have sort of the language or the framework at the time, this issue of, of race in the church was always present in my mind and my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to undergrad at the University of Notre Dame, like we said, and that was an interesting experience because it's a Catholic school, but it's also where I uh, first got exposed to something called Reformed Theology, which I wouldn't have known to call it that then, but, um, you know, mm-hmm. the same friend from high school who had introduced me to the faith sent me some books, and that got me going down a particular path. Uh, and lo and behold, in Reformed theology, it's, it's, it's very white demographically. And so I found myself mm-hmm. in churches and spaces that were still very white and thinking about race and all that. But then when I, when I graduated, I joined Teach for America and became a teacher, and they placed me in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side, which is where I live to this day. And so uh, the county I live in was listed as the fourth poorest county in the U.S. Uh, it, it is predominantly black. Uh, it is right on the Mississippi River in cotton country. And so the present day... Uh, uh, statistics are directly related to the history of sharecropping and slavery. Uh, you can draw a direct line. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so then I started asking issues, asking about issues of justice as it pertained to the faith. And in this sort of white European Christian circles that I was part of, they didn't have a lot to say. Uh, but I knew it was important. And so then I went to seminary at, uh, in, in Jackson, Mississippi and moving to Jackson was, a, was an awakening. Um, it, it just sort of brought everything together in, in really complex ways around race and religion and as, and history as well. So, uh, started mm-hmm. something called the African-American leadership initiative there to try to recruit more black students to the seminary, encountered some really vicious opposition in some ways uh from other christians Mm. to that endeavor because we were this was happening um you know in the midst of black lives matter and and ferguson and all those things Mm. uh and also that's when when i went to jackson is when i started the reformed african-american network which which became the witness and we're trying to bring up it's Mm. it's a it's a multimedia faith-based company that's that's talking about issues of race religion and culture from a black Christian perspective. So mm-hmm. we're bringing these up on blogs and then later the podcast and getting lots and lots of pushback. And so uh, my journey has been sort of um, a journey of realizing how white Christianity in the United States conceived of race, racial reconciliation, racial justice, um, meeting with a lot of resistance and opposition, not necessarily from a lot of people, but it was vociferous and it was acute. And the people who, this was the biggest betrayal I felt. The people who I mm. thought were allies ended up mm. being silent mm. in, the, in the worst moments of yeah. uh, kind of, you know, the pushback that I was receiving. So that told me, you know, uh, I ha- I've met great individuals and I still have great individual relationships, but 
as far as the institutions and the denominations and some of the churches, it's not for me if I want to have run this marathon, right? And finish yeah, the race. Yeah. It was going to yeah, kill yeah. me either spiritually or even physically in terms mm-hmm. of stress uh, before we got there. So um, I didn't even get to the history program, but it's all, it's all related in me trying to um, discover yeah, yeah. more about the history of race relations and, and the church in the U.S. Uh, to try to be a voice for racial justice in the present day. Yeah. Well, and it ties, I think, you know, once you mentioned there about the silence of your, of people who you had thought were allies, um, that ties in with this concept of complicity, yep. you know, courage versus complicity. And in some ways, the whole book sets up a contrast between those two ideas, you know, courage versus complicity. So I wonder, can you unpack a little bit, maybe for listeners who haven't read the book yet, I hope they get the book and read it. But can you unpack that concept of complicity a little bit for us? Yeah, and it's really good that you latched on to that sort of dichotomy between courage and complicity. I think that's a really important paradigm to have. Um, when we think of racial, when we think of racism or racial oppression, we usually think of the extremes. We think of the people putting on white robes and hoods, burning crosses, tying the nooses, etc. Um, yeah. And we say those are the real racists. And what happens then is that implicitly we're saying, well, I'm not that. So I'm not the racist or I'm not part of the problem. Well, of course, there are those folks at the extremes and they get the headline in the press and, and, you know, rightfully so. But at the same time, there is an entire community and culture around that that enables it. And so what I say in the book is that the worst instances of racial oppression happen within a context of compromise. And so the book begins with the 16th Street Birmingham church bombing in September of 1963, where four young black girls are killed by an act of racial terror. And then I go into the speech of a white lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr., who is really affected by this. And um, he's speaking to a white audience of young businessmen. And he's saying, well, who threw that bomb? And his answer is, we all did it. And he's right, because the reality is that by 1963, Birmingham had already earned the nickname of Bombingham, that there was a neighborhood in Birmingham already called Dynamite Hill because so many of these acts of racial terror had taken place. And the question is, what were white Christians doing in the midst of that? You know, where were the protests? Where was the pushback? Where was the, you know, absolutely not in our town or, or not in the name of Christ would this ever happen? And, and what Charles Morgan Jr. was saying is that, listen, we may not have planted that dynamite, but every time we made a racial joke or used a racial slur or didn't speak up in the midst of racial oppression, we were part of it and, and we had a hand in it. So that's the idea of complicity, um, that there are folks who are at the extremes actually perpetrating the physical crimes. But there's also an entire community, including Christians, that sort of... Um, either looked the other way or looked at it and didn't speak up. And that's what I want to talk about in terms of compromise and complicity. Well, in the intro of the book, you write, history and scripture teaches us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession. And there can be no confession without truth. 
And I thought that was an important statement because you write about in the book how the American church often, and the white church, often desires racial reconciliation, but we want to sort of skip the hard steps of repentance and truth-telling when it comes to history, but also when it comes to the present. Can you, can you maybe talk a little bit about how that happens? We want to skip the truth-telling and get right to the, the sort of kumbaya, maybe. That's a great question. And really, there's so much to say about the way racial reconciliation. There's so much to say about the way racial reconciliation has been conceived by the evangelical church. And I will include people of color in that, particularly black men in that. So I can't get into all of that. I will recommend a book to your listeners called I Bring the Voices of My People. I Bring the Voices of My People by Shaniqua Walker Barnes. What I love about her assessment is she starts with the Promise Keepers, Promise Keepers movement in the 1990s, and she brings a womanist perspective and, and, and speaks into it as a black woman about how it, it, it is really a gendered movement. There was very little room for women of color, particularly black women in the evangelical racial reconciliation movement. Uh, but also she gets at the idea that I try to get at in The Color of Compromise, which is that uh, I call it reconciliation light. And so um, the first problem is that they misdiagnose the problem. So most people, when they think of rec racial reconciliation, they think of it as a solution to the problem of separation. So the separation mm -hmm. is the issue. And therefore, the solution is to get people mm -hmm. together. So if we can get people sitting uh -huh. together in the same pews uh -huh. or doing a joint church service, et cetera, then we're solving the problem of racism. We're bringing reconciliation. When really the deeper problem is justice. Justice goes mm. uh, to the racial wealth gap. Justice goes to uh, the issue of mass incarceration and disproportionately putting black and brown and poor people in cages. One second. <coughs> Excuse me. Justice goes to the fact that we're still seeing unarmed black people killed by police, right. which has its right. roots in, in slave patrol. Right. So unless we're talking about that, we can't get to the reconciliation part. And, and a lot of people avoid the justice conversation by avoiding the history conversation. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at the pattern over time, it tells a very depressing story when it yeah. comes to white Christians' involvement in racial justice. And so you can look at things like uh, the myth of the lost cause, which sort of romanticizes the antebellum South as this kind of idyllic society and Southern Confederates as mm -hmm. reluctantly dragged into a war they didn't want to have uh, just to protect their way of life and that enslaved people were by and large happy and all of these kinds of things. That's a denial of history. It's a denial of truth. And so if you're going to cling to those kinds of things and the symbols that go with them, like Confederate statues and monuments and flags, then you can't really be seriously talking about racial reconciliation. That's the point I'm trying to make. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that the Civil War was about, quote, states' rights, uh, <laughs> you know, Instead of specifically the right to own other human beings made in the image of God, you know, 
um, the sort of cliches that we, or the talking points maybe would be a better way to, to say it that get sort of bandied about. Um, well, you know, we talk, we, the book is about history. Um, you, you just sort of walk us through the history of not just the United States, but going back before um, the Declaration of Independence and North America up to the present day. But one of the things that just smacked me in the face this week, because we, we had scheduled this interview and I had typed up some questions for you. And what was just crushing to realize is just in the time it took me to print off my questions, I was having to add new names and new hashtags to the ever-growing pile of black bodies, um, you know, unarmed, innocent um, black civilians. And so just since I printed off my notes, we've had Ahmaud Arbery, we've had Breonna Taylor, we've had, and now just recently, George Floyd, um, this uh, unarmed black man in, uh, just killed uh, by a white police officer in full view of other police officers in full view of civilians. And I mean, it's just, it's just crushing. But one of the things I noticed in your book is the intentionality to speak about black bodies mm -hmm. uh, and not just black people. Um, and I've noticed that in your writing, but I've also noticed it in other authors like ta Coates and like Esau Macaulay. Um, I know Esau's a friend of yours. Uh, oh, yeah. This this choice to speak specifically of black bodies, violently, you know, crushed, extinguished. I wonder if you can talk about why that's an important distinction to make, specifically in evangelicalism, where we've been very concerned about saving souls, perhaps, but uh, maybe not as much on on bodies. That's great, and I'm glad you picked up on that. It's something that I think people can really overlook. Um, but it's vitally important that the focus is on the black body because it is the black body or physical bodies that have been weaponized within a context of white supremacy. And so think about it all the way from the days of race based chattel slavery. Black people were commodified and given a monetary value based on our bodies, based on the mm -hmm. physical labor that we could perform and for women the reproductive labor that they could perform. Yeah. And that reproductive labor was commodification too because the offspring of that rape between a white slave owner and the black enslaved woman became his property. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that white slave owner oftentimes did not treat that child as a son or daughter, but as another mm -hmm. commodity, as another piece of chattel uh, or property. Mm -hmm. So our bodies have always been central to the story of white supremacy, slavery. If you think of segregation, you're separating our bodies from white bodies, mm -hmm. from, from the presence mm -hmm. of white people. It is our physical presence that is an issue. Mm -hmm. um, if you think of lynching, the, the, the canvas upon which this violent portrait is painted is the black body. And the mutilation of the black body and the torture of the black body often went with it, which is why Mamie Till Mobley, Emmett Till's mother, had such a, 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 a disruptive act when she chose to allow people to see what white supremacy had done to the body of her 14-year-old black son. Um, 
And even in the present day, as we're looking at, at police violence and uh, the violence that black people are enduring in all kinds of ways, it lands on the body. And so I want to read a quote from ta Coates, Between the World and Me. It's a book I yeah. recommend everyone read. It's a short read, but dense and thick. And you'll yeah. think about what he's talking about for years to come. And he says this. It's hard to face this, but all your phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, mm -hmm. that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. And so just to bring it up to the present day, um, black people are, are, are constantly aware of the way our bodies are perceived by other people, particularly white people. And so mm -hmm. black men, in a way, have to shrink themselves to appear non-threatening. So if I'm ever in an mm -hmm. elevator or, you know, somewhere and there's a, a white woman, man, I tell you, it, it, is, it is at the front of my mind, what can I do or avoid mm -hmm. doing so she won't think I'm a threat? And we saw this yeah, with yeah. A, a man named Christian Cooper in, in Central Park just recently. He was literally yeah. out yeah. bird watching. A man who, who, who had been doing this for years, a white woman was there with yeah. her dog that was not on a leash and it was required to be on a leash. He, had, he asked her to put it on a leash. She didn't want to do it and basically mm -hmm. calls the police, deliberately changes her mm -hmm. tone and her intonation to make it seem like she was in imminent danger. And, and, and that can be mm -hmm. a death sentence, we know, because of police yeah. violence in these encounters yeah. Yeah. With, with black yeah. people. Um, but it was that man's body. Right. It was it was his yeah. body that she yeah. deemed yeah. a threat. So we do have yeah. to talk about black bodies and the way that our skin yeah. and our appearance has been socially constructed to be perceived as a threat. And that's a threat that that lands on our bodies as people respond to this perception. Yeah. Well, and I. It's almost like a kind of racial Gnosticism, you know, and I, I know that's a, for some of the listeners, it's probably like, what in the world? But like, you know, Gnosticism, this sort of early heresy that basically said the soul is what matters, the body's shoddy and unimportant, right? So there's almost like a kind of racial Gnosticism that I think you can see creeping in to Christianity. And you talk about it in your book where certain people, I think Jonathan Edwards is one, you know. There's an opposition to slavery in some forms because it might hamper, quote, evangelism, but not an inherent opposition in terms of what it does to black bodies, right? And I, I, I so want to um, to mention this, but I'm glad you brought it up, this sort of separation of body and soul that white Christians mm -hmm. have uh, forced onto the, the biblical gospel message, because I, I don't think that's a biblical right. paradigm is to have this stark separation. Uh, but but we can think of uh, this miss missionary Francis Lejar in the late um, 18th century, 
He was a missionary for the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel, and he had very little success evangelizing or converting. He was uh, attempting to uh, evangelize Native Americans and um, enslaved Africans. But when he did have some success in persuading them to accept his version of the gospel, at baptism, when he made them recite baptismal vows, these, these words, this, this oath that you give upon your entrance into the household of God, he made them say that you are, you, you, you vow that you are taking this blessing of baptism purely for the salvation of your souls and not out of any desire for your own physical emancipation, basically. And so what he was doing there was a, yeah. was a theological move yeah. that says God can have your soul, but we have your body and separates those right. two, even right. at this critical moment of baptism when you're supposed to be welcomed in as an equal member in the household of God. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure glad Yahweh didn't do that with the Exodus, right? I mean, <laughs> he leads the bodies out and not just the souls from Egypt, you know. Um, so that, that's helpful. I think that distinction and that emphasis on bodies. Um, well, my guest today again is Jamar Tisby. Jamar, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back on Outpost Theology. Are you spending more time at home lately? I know I am. Oklahoma Wesleyan University is your learn-from-home expert. We have online classes and online degrees and everything from business, ministry, nursing, psychology, and general studies. You can apply online, be accepted online, apply for financial aid online, and complete your entire degree one class at a time online. For more information on Oklahoma Wesleyan's online education options, go to okwu.edu. That's okwu.edu. Edu and make the most of your time at home. Well, again, my guest today is Jamar Tisby. We're talking about his book, The Color of Compromise and Race in, in America and in the American Church. And Jamar, early in the book, you give these six ways, six ways in which your message, the book, will be disregarded by segments of the white church. And I don't think you numbered them, but I numbered them in my book as I was writing all over the, the margins. Uh, you say, number one, It'll be disregarded because it'll be, quote, it'll be called too liberal, right? Labeled liberal. It'll be disregarded, number two, because some people will say there's a hidden Marxist communist agenda somewhere in here. Number three, it'll be disregarded because it espouses, quote, in the eyes of some, a victim mentality. Number four, because it doesn't focus on the real church, but just on a tiny racist minority, right? Number five, some people will say that you've got your facts wrong, um, the history wrong. And then number six, some people are going to disregard it because they're going to say you've abandoned, quote, the gospel for, quote, social justice. And I thought that was, was really accurate because I've heard every single one of those critiques leveled anytime somebody wants to talk about racial justice, social justice, reconciliation. So. Uh, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of those critiques. I'm sure you've heard them a million times. You can pick one, you can go wherever you want, but I thought that was helpful to sort of list them out. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I, I hadn't numbered them in my own mind when I wrote them, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's helpful that you did. Now I know. Um, 
So, because of the way white Christianity and especially white evangelicalism has defined itself, it's going to be very resistant to any conversation about race because white supremacy in mm -hmm. general relies on invisibility and deniability. So it mm -hmm. makes race invisible to the majority, to white people who don't think they have a race and they're just individuals out mm -hmm. here without a context. Um, it also thrives on deniability where you can say, I'm not racist or that wasn't racist. Mm -hmm. There's some other cause. Mm -hmm. And you can do that till the end of days. And a lot of people do mm -hmm. without ever sort of giving space that, yeah, it could be related to race. Um, so all of those six mm -hmm. that you listed are just different ways of doing the same thing. They deflect and they deny and they render invisible that which uh, people of color and black people have experienced firsthand and that which history attests to. So I put that in the introduction because... Um, it's really hard to write about race, especially to Christians, without hearing those voices as you're writing or as you're speaking. Mm -hmm. You're hearing the objections, you're hearing mm -hmm. the denials, you're hearing the arguments back. So I wanted to address that in the beginning, like any good writing, you know, anticipate the objection, anticipate mm -hmm. the argument. Um, right. One of the right. most common that you'll hear is just the labeling, right? If you're labeled liberal or left, Mm -hmm. and there are prominent white evangelical mm -hmm. Christians who are using that language, then if, you, if, you're, if you're attached to that label, you can automatically be disregarded because there's something about your approach that is not trustworthy. Uh, they do this often mm -hmm. with uh, black liberation theology. So when I was in seminary, right. no one ever talked about liberation theology except to say this is an example of what not to do. And to me, that's a form of theological and cultural imperialism, theological and cultural racism, uh, that there's, there's, there's really no value here. You know, we, we went through it and critiqued it for what they got wrong, but weren't paying any attention to the context out of which these kinds of theologies are arriving, nor did we pay much attention to the context out of which the so-called trustworthy theology was arising and who it was coming from right. and what advantages they had in society, etc. So that's one. Uh, the the label they like now is critical race theory. Yes. Yeah. It blows my mind because none of the people talking about race in those circles is anywhere close to an ultra progressive on critical race theory. Many of us weren't even familiar with the term. We got our ideas from right. the Bible, from history, from the black church, etc. And so I bring that up because A, it's recent, and B, you sort of saw this become an issue in real time. So I can remember when it was just a handful of far-right Christians who said, oh no, critical race theory is this huge threat to the gospel. And for some reason, yeah. they persuaded enough people that there are blogs on mainstream websites about it. There are, you know, paragraphs or chapters in books about it. There are conference lectures and talks on it. And I'm like, this is an invented problem that has somehow gained traction. Yeah. Uh, but that's what you deal with. Yeah. That's what you deal with when, especially yeah. if you're black or a person of color, but also if you're white and you try to bring this up, they're going to try to put you in a box that is labeled heretical or heterodox. And therefore, whatever you say, about Jesus or race, 
they don't have to listen to. Yeah. Well, I think it's helpful that you listed them because I think one of the best, I think one of the most effective ways of combating that is to say up front, now, here are the five things you're going to say about me. <laughs> and so when that card gets played, when that card gets played, you know, the audience is aware that it is a card, you know, you're not, you know, people can't see you right now. You're not wearing a Joseph Stalin t-shirt or anything like that. But, <laughs> you know, it's like, but, Which by the way, I, I, I mean, I, look, there's, 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 here's one of the things, here's, here's, there's, you know, there's idols in every culture, right? And so in white evangelical culture, one of the idols that tends to be unspoken is the idol of capitalism. Uh, and, and the way I talk about race-based chattel slavery is within a capitalistic framework because there was always racism, right? There's always bigotry toward people who are different. But why did it take America's bloodiest war to actually abolish slavery? It's because there was money in it. So race-based chattel slavery, chattel means property. And so black people weren't considered people. They were considered in the same category as a plow or a cart or a house. And that's why they put monetary value on black bodies, because we were chattel, we were property. And that is because what was race-based chattel slavery trying to do in a capitalist system? Your goal is to maximize your profit and minimize your loss. And so you've got plantation owners who want to make the most money possible and reduce costs. Well, if you look at any budget up to the present day, your biggest expenditure is going to be on uh, wages, salary, and benefits for your employees. So the biggest way to cut costs is to pay people less or lay people off. Well, they went one better in race-based chattel slavery. They just didn't pay their laborers at all. And that happened over the course of centuries as black people's labor, black people's bodies, literally built the wealth of this country. And for that, we were never financially compensated, which segues into the conversation on reparations. Uh, we were never compensated in slavery. We were not compensated immediately following slavery with 40 acres and a mule. And we haven't been financially compensated to this day, which is the main reason why we have a racial wealth gap where the median income of a white family in 2013 was 13 times higher than that of a black family. And that wealth is that 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 gap is not closing so that if we continue on this trajectory, the gap gets even bigger over time. Now, you can come down in one of two places as you try to explain the racial wealth gap. You can say black people are lazy and they're bad with money and it's their fault. Or you can say there's a problem with the system with the system and there's a historic trajectory that leads to this inequality. And so obviously I fall on the side of, of the history, but, but critics will take all of that, that whole framework, and say you're anti-capitalist and therefore you're Marxist or communist, you're materialist and godless, and therefore I don't have to listen to you. Totally disregarding the way that capitalism exploits people who are what we're now labeling essential workers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, would it be fair to say the driver for chattel slavery was not primarily racism. Racism was wrapped up in it, but greed, uh, sort of monetary, um, the, the, the yeah, money think, that could be gained from it. Would you see that as the, the primary driver, or, or how would you think through that? 
I mean, they're mutually constitutive, right? So, so mm -hmm. where Marxists fell short, particularly with the black community in the U.S., is they wanted to make it all about class. And so they were mm -hmm. more racially egalitarian because they were sort of open to any poor people, which, of course, include mm -hmm. a lot of black people. But what, what they weren't willing or able to do was to really have a racial analysis embedded in that, an ideological, social, uh, mm -hmm. social analysis. It was all material. Uh, so that fell short. Um, but to say it's all sort of personal bigotry and racism, that falls short because there's always a material element to it. There's always a financial element to it. Uh -huh. So I would say that capitalism gave racism its structure and its resilience. So in the fact that it became a society-wide way of organizing people according to race, that's partly due to capitalism. And the fact that it... It never went away legislatively. It never went away with sort of the progress of humanity. It took a war to abolish mm -hmm. slavery. And to this day, we're still what Brian Stevenson said is the uh, the North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war. Yeah. And so we're yeah. still fighting that war about, you know, black equality in many ways. And uh, there is a, a capitalist element to it that that certain people benefit from the oppression of people of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk about with regard to the war, like, and this just sort of struck me, I'm, I guess I just hadn't thought about it this way, that in the Civil War, the depth of connection and belief in chattel slavery was so strong that thousands and thousands of people were willing to die for that belief, right? They were willing to die for it. So it wasn't just like this addendum to their worldview. That's right. It was, it was very, very uh, important to them, right? Even they would lay down their life for it. Well, um, even, even now, so let me, let me talk real quick about the Civil War. So the Mississippi Articles of Secession, uh, drafted in January 1861 to outline the reasons why the state was going to separate from the Union and join the Confederacy, said this. I'll read you a quote. It said, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. Thoroughly identified. And it calls slavery the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce on the earth. So the leaders in Mississippi and the Confederacy were very clear that A, the Civil War was about the maintenance and expansion of slavery, and B, the reason why slavery was so important is because it was financially profitable. They called it the greatest material interest in the world. It said its labor supplies the product, right? So it's a very sort of capitalist, producer, all that kind of stuff, uh, orientation. And, 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 and that idea, that mentality persists even today where I don't think it would be a stretch to connect the willingness of certain populations to go back out in the world in the midst of a pandemic to the fact that it's not affecting them the same way it's affecting people of color. And so that black people are dying from COVID-19 at vastly disproportional rates uh, than, than our population is represented overall. Uh, so that's part of it. And the willingness to patronize businesses where the workers are deemed essential workers, but they're paid very little and oftentimes people of color. So these are the service industries, the hospitality industries, uh, food, uh, grocery stores, meat packing plants, those, those are poor black and brown people 
by and large. Um, and, and, and we still feel like we can exploit that labor to a certain extent. So it's complicated. It's all wrapped up together. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you talk about what you call the white evangelical toolkit uh, in the book. And basically, as I've been watching the news, and again, those names I mentioned, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, I've seen just an outpouring of um, frustration, outrage, lament from white Christians in the last week or two that maybe I've never seen ever, specifically because of we've got cell phone footage now of some of these lynchings, these murders. Um, But you talk about in the book why that outrage over these events doesn't necessarily translate into lasting change, right? Um, it, it you, our social media news cycle, you know, we we get really upset about something, and then a day or two later, it's kind of gone, you know, and we're on to the next thing. And you talk about how one reason for the lack of change is what you call the the white evangelical toolkit that centers on accountable individualism, relationalism, and anti-structuralism. And probably for a lot of listeners who like haven't read the book yet, like, man, those are big terms. Like, what? Can you talk about that a little bit um, for folks maybe who haven't read the book yet that'll help them grasp what you mean by that? Yep. And, and I'm borrowing those terms from um, Divided by Faith, which is a book by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. They're two sociologists who study white evangelicalism and the, and the problem of race. And so they talk about um, a really interesting application of, of their findings is that white evangelical practices and understanding of race actually actually go against their stated opinions about race. So, so white evangelicals will, will verbally say, we want racial progress, we want racial justice, but then the way they understand race and theology actually works against that. And so they, they talk about this toolkit, and the bottom line is it's very individualistic. All of those things talk about uh, individualism. And so white evangelicals tend to conceptualize the problem of race as an individual issue of one person not liking someone else. And then the next part of that toolkit is, well, if the problem is like personal animus, then the solution is I'm going to be kind to to people of different races and ethnicities. And I'm going to go out and have coffee with them. And uh, I'm going to have them at my church. And some of my best friends are black. And therefore, I'm not racist. I can't be racist because I'm nice to black people. And then the, the, the last aspect, the anti-structuralism, is uh, all of the issues of race that, that may be present are due to individual actions. And it's not actually embedded in a system or a policy. That has nothing to do with it. Those aren't people. They can't not like people. They're just mm. systems, right? So that's a deficient understanding of race and racism, and therefore it is very impotent uh, in the face of racial injustice, because if you can't think on a systemic and a structural level, if you can't understand that racism can operate outside of any personal um, intentions, then it's going to be very hard for you to understand race at all and then do something Mm -hmm. about it. And to sort of maybe get on my theologian, you know, hobby horse. I think it'd be fair to say it's unbiblical too, right? That mm. that the scriptures speak both of sins, you know, actions done by 
an individual person, right? But they also speak of sin as a personified enslaving power that takes up residence in institutions, in, in nations, in structures, right? Um, my sense is that maybe evangelicals have done a better job of talking about individual sins than, uh, than about the capital S, sort of the enslaving power of sin, right? right? Mm -hmm. That's right, that yeah. possesses and inhabits entire... The prophets speak about it all the time, right? They can, they can speak in structural ways or speak to the rulers or speak to the merchants or speak, you know, but we've sort of lost that vocabulary in white evangelicalism in some cases. And, and I'm sure you do this, but uh, for your listeners, I think it's, you know, as, as the conversation wraps up and people are thinking about, well, what do I do? You know, what, what can be done about racism and racial injustice? One of those things is, is, is to emphasize what you just talked about. I mean, all over the Bible, both Old and New Testament, God mm -hmm. speaks in, in sort of group terms, right? He's speaking mm. to yeah. people groups, yeah. whether it's the church, right. capital C, or the ecclesia, the called out ones. He's speaking of a community, whether he's speaking to Israel, whether he's speaking about Babylon or, you know, in, any sort of occupying mm -hmm. power. Like he's, God is speaking to, to whole groups of people, even as he speaks to individuals. And so... What does that look like in our in our sermons, in our Bible studies, in our Sunday schools to say that uh, the way God is conceptualizing both justice and injustice is in a it's in collective and communal terms, and it's not just about what one person mm -hmm. does; it's about sort of the character mm -hmm. of this group or this nation or whatever it might be. Um, so I think that's a practical way that folks and and there are a lot of folks that don't have that understanding, we have to do something that a lot of people call decolonizing our theology, um, which is to say that, that we're learning from more than just European or white people, um, and we're un mm. dismantling maybe some harmful conceptions uh, that, that come out of mm -hmm. that. Uh, so, so reading theologians of color, right, right now in the midst of a pandemic, it's a great time to go to different churches because you don't even have to leave your house. <laughs> like everybody yeah. is broadcasting online. So why don't you visit a black church or a Latino church mm. and listen to the ways yeah. that these uh, preachers of color are conceptualizing issues of justice and race and, and just the Bible overall. Yeah, that's super helpful. I mean, I think I, I definitely want to talk about, you know, practical things that, that we can do. Um, people like myself, white, male, Christian, but, but anybody, like what can we do? And, and you talk about what you call at the end of the book, the arc of racial justice, the arc of racial justice. So that the ARC awareness, relationship, and commitment, right? How do we, we move forward? So for folks who haven't read it yet, The Color of Compromise, a lot of it's history, walking through the history, but at the end, you kind of get into some application and uh, awareness, things like uh, documentaries on racial history, diversifying your social media feed, podcasts, um, doing a Google search rather than just asking your one black friend everything. Thank you. <laughs> Save me a lot of work. <laughs> you, don't, you can't do that many Zoom calls. That's just too many. <laughs> true. Would you like to talk a little bit about that arc of racial justice as we talk about we all, hopefully, if you're not, you know, brain dead right now, you recognize something needs to change, right? I think 
most people are, are aware of that. Can you talk about that arc and, and what that looks like? So the most frequent question I get by far whenever I talk about grace and justice in the church is, what do we do? And, and to me, that's an encouraging question because it says folks recognize a problem and they want it to change, but they're not quite sure how to go about it or even where to start. I mean, if you talk, start talking about racial justice, that's a big, complicated, messy issue. Actually, it's a, it's a collection of issues, right? And so what can one person do or even one church or one denomination do about this big old problem? Uh, when people ask me that question, what do we do? I used to just sort of throw out answers, kind of a, you know, smattering, like scattering seeds kind of a thing. Um, but it was very unfocused and it was hard to hold on to. So the arc of racial justice, I think, helps in two ways. Number one, it gives us some, some helpful categories that we can think about. And, 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 and number two, it breaks this big problem down into sections. And so the awareness category is what most listeners are already doing. They're adding information and knowledge about the racial dilemma in the U.S. Listening to this podcast is one. Watching documentaries like 13th uh, or, or the O.J. Simpson story, you know, that's another way to do it. All the books that you that's building your awareness. Uh, another thing, though, we can't just stop there, right, because we'll have big heads. But, but weak hands and, and little hearts. Um, yeah. So another thing that we have to do is build relationship. And this is where, you know, I level very strong critique about the racial reconciliation paradigm in, in white evangelicalism. But, but I don't mean to say that relationships aren't important. Uh, uh, mm. Individual relationships aren't critical. And, and the fact is, and Emerson and Smith talk about this in their book, to the extent that white people start to understand racial justice is usually comes through a person they know. So, mm -hmm. so it, it's hearing a black person talk about what it's like being black that convinces them more than a book or watching a documentary or something. Uh, mm -hmm. Also, I think it's important for people of color to maintain relationships because uh, for me, the more distant I am from white people, the more embittered I can become. I and mean, it's easy to make white people out to be sort of this big, undifferentiated villain and forget that there are individual mm. people who may not be where you are in terms of racial awareness, but they're human beings created in the image of God. And so it's, it's helpful for my own heart and for this work of racial justice mm. to remember that what I'm fighting against is that capital S sin. What I'm fighting against is a principality and a stronghold. And what I wanted to do mm -hmm in God's grace is, is win people and have stronger relationships. But like I said, the problem with racial reconciliation is that we think too individualistically, the commitment part of the arc of racial justice invites us to think structurally and systemically and in terms of policy. So policing is not a matter of one bad apple. It's not a matter of a handful of bad cops. There's something wrong with the way we do policing in general in this country. Mm -hmm. And so the, yeah. the, the commitment aspect would say, well, have your Congress people on speed dial so that you can make your opinions known. It would say, investigate uh, your state's policies, your Department of Corrections and their policies around private prisons. Is there a prison in your community or your district? Uh, talking about, well, what if we don't fund 
police at the level we're doing right now. Instead, divert some of those funds to something like mental health care, which is what brings a lot of people in, con in contact with police. Uh, what does it look like to, to have um, a transparent uh, uh, union contract uh, policy so that we know what the sort of backdoor arrangements are that protect police in, in instances of violence against civilians? So we have to work at a policy level, which is the commitment aspect. But I'll end with this. When it comes right down to it, fighting racial justice isn't a how-to problem, it's a want-to problem. So if mm. anybody took 60 seconds to just brainstorm ideas about how to fight racial justice, you'd be able to come up with some helpful things, right? It may not be the end-all be-all, but you could get a start. You know how by and large, because people have been saying this for centuries, what to do. The question is, will you? It's a conviction. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's an intention. And I hear a lot of people saying, uh, you know, well, if I was alive when, when Martin Luther King was alive, I would have been marching with King, or I would have been participating in the civil rights movement. I would have boycotted or held the signs. Well, the fact is, the civil rights movement never really ended. I think we're in the midst of another wave of the civil rights yeah. movement. And if you're not involved right now, don't say you would have been involved 50 or 60 years ago. So right. it's not a how-to yeah. problem, it's the want-to. And when you come down to questions of racial justice, the, the question isn't how do we get involved, it's will you get involved. Right. Well, Jamar, I think that's a great way to, to wrap up. And I hope that, I hope that readers, I hope the listeners will, will be readers and will get your book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About American, the American Church's Complicity in, in Racism. But they don't have to just read about it. They can check out uh, Pass the Mic podcast, uh, The Witness, The Black Christian Collective. And so uh, I just thank you so much for being, for being on with us on Outpost Theology. And uh, I'm praying that the, uh, the Holy Spirit will do a work in the American church and move us towards the justice that we've, we've talked about today. Amen. And I'll say this is uh, the beginning of a conversation, so if folks want to continue it, they can follow me on social media, at Jamar Tisby, uh, on Twitter, at Jamar Tisby, on Instagram. I have a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Jamar Tisby and the number one, Jamar Tisby one. Uh, also, like the, the podcast you mentioned and our website, thewitnessbcc.com. I also want to mention we just started something called the Witness Foundation. We are raising a million dollars to form a leadership cohort of black Christians. We want to fund 20 Christian leaders at $50,000 a year and give them leadership training and things like fundraising and organizational leadership so that we're training up the next generation of civil rights leaders and justice advocates in the present day. And so you can be part of that. You can support us uh, with a one-time or a monthly gift at uh, thewitnessfoundation.co, thewitnessfoundation.co. Fantastic. I hope, I, hope, I hope folks will check it out. And Jamar, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, you've done it. You've survived another episode of Outpost Theology at the frontier of theology, culture, and the church. And you could really help us out here if you would go to wherever you download, consume your podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps to get the episodes out there to more people. You can also contact me at jmcnall at okwu if you uh, have episodes, ideas, topics that you'd like to hear more about. And we'll see you next time on Outpost Theology.